Church, if you have a Bible, and I certainly hope you do, I'm going to ask you to turn them to John chapter 15. I, uh, I think you'll find that this passage was particularly selected for us by the sovereignty of God this morning as we continue to make our way faithfully through God's Word. Um, John 15, we're going to pick up in verse 18, and uh, we're going to read down through 16 verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were were of of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is no great, it's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. And if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. And if I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. When the counselor comes, the one who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell them these things, tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, not planning at all in any shape or form for the events that have occurred over the past week. And then we come to this passage. Um, I think we see the kindness of God in this, at least we should. We, we think about everything that's happening over in Ukraine and in Russia, and, and it, it bothers us. We don't know exactly how we should respond or how we should think about all the implications of what's happening over there. We are weak humanity and we can all come up with all kinds of ideas about what we think was best. And trust me, everyone's, you know, pontificating about that right now. Um, some are, as you, if you've seen any of my social media activities, some people are being shamed for any even praying for the things that are going over there because of some assumed you know, political or cultural posture behind it, which is sad. But there is much fear and anxiety in our world today. We're on high alert. Threats of war and international turmoil, political unrest and division here in our own nation, the radical, if you will, transformation of uh, the moral fabric of our own world of our own nation is right before us and and we are just like in the middle of this going what in the world what are we to do with this so how are we to live in this hostile world 
It's really a question I think many of us want to know. We don't just generally live in this hostile world like everyone else does in some sense we do, but we live in a very specific uh, way in this hostile world as Christians, knowing that Christians specifically feel the heat of the world's hostility towards us because of the things in which we value, the things in which we trust in, the things in which we believe, particularly that which will save men's souls, which is the only one son, Jesus. And so last week we saw Jesus give this chief command to love one another. And then he makes this like real, like full stop, the world's going to hate you. And you're like, what? How do we go from such positive things and what embodies us most fully as Christians, which is this idea to love one another, how does Jesus make such a full stop pivot right now in this text um, for us this morning and, and, and how do we connect the two? And it's really a big question that we all want to wrestle with, right? Like, how does the command to love one another relate to this teaching now of the world's hatred and hostility, particularly towards God and his people? And what we're going to find this morning in this passage is because of the love we have for one another, we have the strength to carry on, remain steady and grounded in the person and work of Jesus so that we will not stumble. That's the main idea here. And say it again, as we love one another, we will live and endure in life in this hostile world, which helps us remain steady and grounded in the personal work of Jesus so that we will not stumble. And we're going to unpack all that wonderful truth this morning from this text. Something that I hope will give us us great uh, encouragement, great courage as we leave this place in a few minutes. I want to make sure that we take notice of this, is that we, we, this is a little prayer guide put out by Send Relief. Uh, which is an organization, kind of an arm of the SBC that connects our international efforts and our North American domestic efforts. And they, they are work to make sure that we have an arm, a stream in which to provide relief through these efforts to people. And they've got a particular uh, working on opening up ways to do those in um, Ukraine and around Ukraine and all the nations. As Justin said, and as Bob shared with us this morning, 365,000 as of this morning. Yeah. As of right now, yeah, that was as of this morning, and there's estimated to be around 4 million will be disaffected by the time this is all said and done, is what they are estimating. And so there's just a lot going on out there, and so we want to be prayerful about it. We certainly want to find ways, and so we'll be giving you, hopefully over the days to come, uh, ways in which we do. We got another uh, friend from our sending church. Um, her name is Ren- uh, uh, Raluca Whitenack, who is the associate pastor's wife. She grew up in Romania and was led to Christ by a, disciple, uh, a missionary who actually has been working in Ukraine. And so she's going to send us information in which ways we might be able to connect with them. So in the days to come, we will hope that maybe we'll find ways to be able to participate in some type of relief effort for those who are being affected by the things that are going on there. There's three things I want to see in this passage this morning. First, I want us to take a look at, take an honest assessment of the world's hostility towards us and towards, us, towards God. I think that's one thing we're going to see this morning is just really, do we really understand the, the nature, the depth of this hostility? The second thing we're going to see is then what is the shape of our um, witness in this hostile world? What does it look like for us to, to be and remain witnesses? In it? And in the end, we'll conclude with how to, why is it important that we face these discouraging realities? Why do we not put our heads in the sand, if you will, um, as God's people? And we'll look at all three of those things. Let's look at the first idea. 
an honest assessment of the world's hostility towards God and his people. And these are going to be taken from verses 18 through 25. I won't reread them again, but we'll read them as they come along here. But we see very, very fundamentally here, the very first thing we see is this need to understand um, the legacy that runs behind the world's enmity towards God. And that namely, that hatred, right? It says, I hate, they hated me before they hated you. And it says in verse 23 and 24, they hated my father. That hostility, that hatred has its origins in something much deeper than just Jesus's moment in this time. Like it goes way back to the garden, as we all know. Now, if you define hatred, here's what we find. Um, some, and I, I think these are very helpful, hatred is defined as the absence of love for or love from a person or being. Um, if you look at the Webster's Dictionary, you find it's an extreme dislike or disgust, hate. It's ill will or resentment that is usually accompanied by mutual prejudice and hostility and animosity. And it is to feel extreme enmity toward some being or someone with regard to and associated with active hostility. Now, all that, if you put it together, helps us to understand what's happening here because the word enmity is really what we see a lot in Scripture is that we are, that we're enmity with God. We have enmity towards God and everything that He is, and that has been running through the very DNA, very bloodstream of humanity since the garden. The origins of that hatred is the result of the rejection, as you guys all know, of God's good and covenantal rule over Adam and Eve in favor of an autonomous rule. A kind of rule that says, I can do this apart from God. Like, that's fundamental. You can't do Christianity without understanding that reality. Trying to is just foolhardy. Trying to talk about the gospel without understanding this reality is just really to short-circuit what the gospel actually is doing. So the hatred for God is not this new reality. And, and, I, and I, I note that for us this morning because like, it didn't just come on the scene in the last 50 years for us here in America. I think sometimes we think that the battle front is to recover something that was treasured in the 40s and 50s or 60s or, well, I mean, that's 60s, but you know, um, that was, you know, but the fact is that, that we're trying to recover something that was, at some reason, was intact some hundred years ago or 75 years ago, when in reality, that is not even close to the thing that we need to put on it. Like, sometimes I fear Christians get caught up that we're fighting the fight on the wrong front. And we need to fight the battle on the right front. The, the fight that has been raging since just after the creation of mankind in the garden is where we start the fight. Amen. Understanding that that's what's behind even what's going on right now in the, in, in, the, in the old Soviet bloc. We have people in this room who are affected by that right now. People who were raised in the Soviet bloc. Or not raised, but were born in the Soviet bloc. And we have people on the ground and relationships in Belarus, and we have relationships all over the place. Our church, God has providentially brought along to us that we understand that that didn't start in World War I or World War II. That goes back to the garden. And the evil that's going on in our own nation in terms of this moral transformation didn't start 50 years ago. It didn't start in the 60s. It didn't start in the 70s. It started in the garden and has been perpetuated since the garden and so we make sure we need to fight the battle on the right front if we're going to fight the battle at all otherwise we are fighting the battle with one hand tied behind our back because what we end up doing is we end up getting into futile cultural debates which have no bearing on our gospel witness whatsoever 
And so it would be foolhardy to address the issues of the modern world simply by this kind of chronological snobbery, if you will. You know, we, we look at this and understanding that the hatred for God and, the, and, and hatred for the things of God, brothers and sisters, is ultimately this relational issue that began way back in the garden. Because verse 21 tells us exactly what the problem is. They don't know God. They don't know God, is what Jesus says right there in verse 21. They don't know him. The reason the enmity exists is because they, we, humanity, have broken this covenant that exists between God and mankind. That covenant we call the covenant of works, or some will call it the covenant of creation. It's a covenant that God made with Adam, and if Adam would have obeyed, Adam would have succeeded in, in receiving the blessing and assurance of God. So that's what a covenant is. To understand a covenant in Scripture is to understand and understand what the whole gospel is. Because a covenant is this binding relationship between two parties with stipulations. And those stipulations are either blessings or cursings. That's what the outflow will be. It will be one or the other. And so God promises certain blessings to Adam for his obedience to his commands and certain cursings if he rejects those commands and those blessings. And we all know Adam and Eve chose poorly. And because of that, they subjected all of humanity to the judgment of God. So we got to fight on the right front. This is what is behind everything, every little bit of resistance that Jesus is experiencing and the church will experience as he's preparing them for right now. Namely, that Jesus comes on the scene and he's exposing both to those around him who are not his followers as well as his followers, hey, this is who you really are. Like it or not, you have to come owning this. You can't receive the kingdom. You can't understand the kingdom. You can't understand God's redemptive purposes if you don't own who you really are and what the real problem is. He's making it clear to all the people that heard his teaching through this up until this point that he himself is God in flesh, and he's coming to reveal to mankind exactly what is the problem and what is needed to fix the problem. Jesus' very ministry brings humanity, and notably in his day, the Jews, the very people who had a special relationship with God through covenant, like Adam, they, he brings them face to face with their sin. He brings them face to face with their enmity towards God. And so that's really what's behind the hatred of the world. He even goes on further that the hatred of the world is driven by this, this not wanting to face who they really are. And then what happens in turn is you're either for us or you're against us kind of mentality in the world, right? And that's what Jesus kind of gets out here in verse 22. Um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 19. Uh, if, if, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And what's Jesus saying there? Jesus is helping his disciples. He's helping us see what is the, the real consequences of being his people and that you can't blend these two, new, two humanities together. You've got the old humanity that's rooted in sin. You've got the new humanity that has been saved and redeemed in Jesus. And these two humanities can't mix. Not that we are not involved in the world, but the fact that, that they, you can't love one and not hate the other. And so this demand by the world is that you will have unconditional conformity, unconditional uniformity towards their ways. Otherwise, you are against us. That is the way the world works. That's the way the world functions, right? We've seen this throughout history. If 
you're not with us in political allegiance, and again, that extends to any spectrum of the conversation, you're against us. If you're not with us in moral allegiance, you're against us. I mean, think about this, right? Think about what's happening in our world. This, right now, the, you are defined, you and I are being defined more and more by our allegiance to certain sexual mores that we know cannot square with the Scriptures. It is hard for us because we want to love the people who are so torn by sexual sin, but we also know that we cannot just buy into that allegiance, can we not? We can't. We can't do this. Polls, though, say that we are. Polls say some really uncomfortable truths about the evangelical experience. It says that pornography usage is now considered a norm among evangelicals especially young people. When you look at the landscape of what's really serious, it seems to me now we've just kind of moved the needle, right? Or even more, polls tell us that cohabitation and premarital sex are just assumed among evangelical Christians and that absence is really just nothing more than a, a, a foregone, uh, associated with a foregone era of the 1950s and to be thrown into the trash heap of culture. Again, you see, you see why we can't fight from the wrong terms? No, we got to fight from the scriptures and what they say clearly about what God says about the nature of sex and how God designed it for us. We got to have bold and hard and difficult yet merciful and gracious conversations with people and tell them what the truth is. The world tells us that we are bending. The world tells us that our allegiance must be to certain material norms and experiences and comforts. And that when those things are compromised, we need to be fearful. And what will happen when times of conflict like happen now is the first thing we begin to think about is what? How is this going to affect us? What's going to happen to the gas pump? And those are important considerations because it's expensive to live. It's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about those things, but again, polls tell us something that we may not like to hear about ourselves among Christians. That living at a, with certain material comforts is expected by a larger percentage of evangelicals in the world than the general population. A certain level of accommodation, right? That among evangelicals, there's a larger contingent of evangelicals who say there's an expectation of a certain level of, of comfort and material gain that is, that, that is expected among the evangelicals than there is among the general population of the world. I can point you these, by the way, if you want to see them yourselves. And guess what happens when that happens? What follows? Well, doesn't our political allegiance and our social allegiance and engagement follow our values? What's going to be best for us? And then, again, just kind of noting some things from even my own engagements with people, it, it seems to me as a see it unfold again social media is the news right unfortunately and sadly but it seems to me that just even making mention of praying for our brothers and sisters in ukraine and and and, and just saying plainly what's good and what's wrong what's evil and what's good seems to be always accompanied with suspicion people want to be suspicious of well which side are you on here are you on side side red or are you on side blue neither 
I'm, I'm for the kingdom of God that preaches the gospel, and I want people to know Jesus, and I want to support churches and missionaries who go into these places and dark and hard places, and we would support them in that work, regardless of what actually unfolds. Because, again, as we saw in, in Psalm 9, we all know how it's going to unfold. I don't, I don't need to worry about what's happening in the Kremlin. I don't need to worry about what's happening in Washington, D.C. per se. That's what is actually plain. But think about sometimes how we've been trained to think about that, right? Likelihood, all of us thought about the Ukraine conflict primarily, first and foremost, about how it might affect us or what potentially could unfold, right? And that's okay. None of us wants to see another big conflict, worldwide conflict happen, right? None of us want to see that. But we understand some of that's because we've been trained to think that way. I know that's uncomfortable. But the reality is, in the end, the world demands full acceptance of their cornucopia of idolatry that rules their vision of life. And they want Christians to do so, and if you don't, then you're not one of them. And so they'll deploy this through social intimidation, they'll deploy this through cancellation, and again, on both ends of the spectrum, brothers and sisters, both ends of the spectrum will seek to cancel you if you don't say the right thing or don't believe the right thing. So this is how the hatred of the world manifests itself in so many different ways. But here's the kicker, it's not new. Like it's new in the sense that like we have modern technological abilities to, to, to see it more in our face every day, but it's not new. Consider the kings and kingdoms that opposed Israel and then even conquered them and took them into, into, into uh, um, exile, right? What were they expected to do? Worship Baals, right? What, what, what were they expected to do? What was Daniel expected to do when he was there and moved into Babylon? He was expected to participate in all of the customs and traditions and all the false worship there. He was expected to do this or else he would not experience the blessing of the king. But we find out that's not true, is it? Daniel resisted in many different ways but he still respected his king. He still loved his king. He still didn't, he wasn't one of those guys who was an all or nothing or a black and white guy. He was like, no king, I worship my God, but I promise you I will seek your good and flourishing too. And there's a way to do that, by the way. It's not always easy to discern what that is, but there is a way to do that. So they expected Israel to participate in their sacrifices and their customs that were direct contradiction contradiction to God. Can, can, Can we make a note about something here? In our modern debates about abortion, do you realize that's not new either? That child sacrifice has been at the core of many ancient civilizations since the beginning of time. Like it was a norm to sacrifice children for the good of the, of the culture. And for many different reasons that I won't have time to go through right now. The difference between them and us now is this. We in the West just want to make it acceptable. We want to make it respectable. But friends, you and I both know death can never be made respectable. Never can be. But the heart behind that all-or-nothing approach to the world, you're either with us or you're against us, comes from what? We find it in this next passage, in this verse, the world's jealousy. The world hates you, Jesus says, because I have chosen you out of it. Amen. Friends, this is just plain old Cain and Abel stuff here. 
Like, think about what happened with Cain and Abel when they were gone and God says to make sacrifices. And Cain brings his sacrifice, which was kind of half-hearted sacrifice. And then you got Abel who brings his sacrifice, which God received because he gave it with a sense of worship and love for his God. What is it that made that happen? It was jealousy, was it not? Did he not kill his own brother out of jealousy because God accepted his brother's sacrifice and not his? It's just plain old jealousy that we see going on here. The root of this treatment from the world is rooted in something that, that sometimes they don't even know exists in their own heart. And it is this jealousy that God has said, these shall be my people. And they'll go, wait a minute, how dare you tell me that some are yours and you, you don't accept me for who I am. You don't accept my offering. You don't accept my act of worship. Friends, it's nothing but Cain and Abel stuff here. And so therefore, that jealousy prompts that kind of persecution, that all or nothing kind of thing, just like Cain despised and murdered his brother. Why? Because God was, he was God's choice and accepted his offering and not his. So you'll have, you'll have all of this, this, uh, this um, rhetoric said towards Christians, and you hear it all the time, it hasn't, it's nothing new, right? That, you know, Christians are nothing but holier than thou, or right-wing wink nuts, or, or too spiritual, or, or moral bigotry, and all kinds of other things that go along with the, the world's kind of, you know, narrative, right? And, and listen, we know that's true of some. Unfortunately, it's true of many Christians, or people who profess to be Christians, and they, they are very much self-righteous and holier than thou. But those of us know what the true Christian faith is and what it means to be a true Christian, understand that it's this, this, this charge is outlandish. Why? Because we know we're not holy. A true Christian knows that. A true Christian knows that they're not holy enough. If that's a revelation to you this morning, let's have a talk about the gospel after this is over with. You're not holy enough. And the true Christian understands that we're not moral enough. The true Christian understands that we're not spiritual enough. And it's from that place that we lead well in the world, right? It's from that place that we can engage things in the Ukrainian conflict or things in Syria or things in whatever parts of the world that will transpire. And we can, enra- and we can engage in those things with a, hu- with a humility. We can engage people who are broken by, 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 by sexual sin in a humble way because we know that we ourselves have been broken in, in ways like that, or at least some of us have. Our ways and our commission is not like the commission of the world and the nations and the kings and the kingdoms. So let's talk about that. What is the shape of our life in this world? That's our second point, right? The second point is very clear. We need to understand the shape of our witness in the world. And that's what we see in verse 26 through 27. When the counselor, it says, comes, the one whom I will send from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, he says. The first thing we need to recognize about our, our, our shape of ministry, our shape of life as Christians is that it is spirit-empowered witness. It's granted through spirit-empowered witness. This is what Jesus has been developing more and more over chapters 14, 15, and as we get into 16 to 17, we're going to see more and more of this, but he wants us to understand that is what shapes you, nothing else, the work of the Spirit in dwelling in your life to empower you to do things that you, you can't even conceive that you can do and participate in. See, our witness is wholly a spirit-empowered witness. Remember what we saw a couple weeks ago in verse 26 of chapter 14. The Spirit will teach you, Jesus says, all things and remind you of everything that I've told you. That's what Jesus is getting at. 
Like, this is the shape of your ministry, to know that you go out with confidence that God is going to remind you and he's going to empower you and he's going to give you everything you need so that when you go out in this world that is at odds with who you are because of your new identity in Christ, that's at odds with, with the kingdom of God, you can go out there in the spirit of God and be witnesses to Jesus. Now, exactly what is the spirit's job? It says right there, to testify about me, to testify about Jesus. So if you want to test whether or not the spirit's at work in your life, you need to test it based on the fact, is, is it about Jesus in your life or is it about something else? If it's about something else, it'll reveal itself. If it's about some kind of cultural ambitions or some kind of political ambitions, it'll, re- it'll reveal itself in our lives. But if it remains always and only about Jesus, that is a mark of a truly God-shaped witness in the world. That's a mark that the Spirit is actually at work in your life because you always want to bring it back, as annoying as it is to the world, always about Jesus. Always about Jesus. But I fear that our witness in the church often is less connected to these things and more connected to our cultural witness, our political prowess, our political savvy, our cultural protest, perhaps. Now listen, before I even dive into that for a second, I just want to make sure I say that um, Christians have, uh, or the Christian has a responsibility to participate in the public square, I believe. I think that's what goes without saying. I think we see this in Daniel, like we mentioned a minute ago, and other people. Paul himself, he, he invoked his right as a Roman citizen to do certain things. Why? For the gospel? Not for anything else. Not to save his life. He invoked his right as a, a Roman citizen so that what? He could get an audience with the emperor for the gospel's sake. Your... your, your rights are not political rights. They're spiritual rights. And we need to recognize that. But now, we, don't, we still participate in these things, and we should, and I think it's right for us to do so. It is right for Christians to speak up for what God says is right, and it's right for Christians to speak up for what God says is wrong or evil, and we should not have to question that. Again, think about Ukraine, the whole thing going on right there. there is, like, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that imperialist ambitions to take over an independent country is evil. And it has been since the dawn of time, by the way. I don't care what the geopolitical makeup of the world is right now. It's just wrong to upend someone's life of otherwise peaceful existence and just do that. Now, okay, oh, be careful, pastor. I don't care. Take it up with me later on. Send me an email. All right. I don't, it, it's just what it is. It's just what it is. Sometimes we do speak up in these things, both ends. Like we talk about the moral, the mor- the moral tragedy of, of abortion, the moral tragedy of the sexual revolution. Yes, but we also talk about the moral tragedy of evil empires. The moral tragedy of indifference. The moral tragedies of, of travesty of overreaching among magistrates in every sense of the world. But we don't do that out of political partisanship. We do that out of kingdom partisanship. God's kingdom spark partisanship. That's what we do it for. And we do it regardless of the political and cultural consequences. See, there's going to be brothers and sisters right now in the next few months, next year perhaps, who are along this conflict, and they're going to have to face the real political consequences of being a believer in the midst of this tragedy and still trying to do work, even though that work is going to be incredibly hard to do and may even cost them their lives or their freedom. And you got to know that Daniel felt the same way, right? That he would have to step up and tell the king, no, I will not accept your diet. And whatever consequences would come from that. 
Now, his, his worked out in his favor. It doesn't always work out in our favor. It doesn't. In the end, a min- our ministry in life is shaped by the empowering, dwelling power of the Spirit in it that testifies to Christ that he being the only hope and the only escape from the judgment that befalls the evil and rebellion in the world, rule, the rules of the world, that rules the world. And this is where we guys land, always and ever and only. But it's not just that. He says in verse 26, right? Or 27, you shall testify because you have been with me from the beginning. So it's not just a spiritual reality that we can get to go and live happily ever after in this peaceful lives. No, sometimes peace doesn't exist because it's just the world doesn't, doesn't know peace. No, we're to go out there and proclaim. We're to go out there, it says, and testify because we have been with Jesus. Now, he's talking to the disciples here, yes, and they have seen him physically and they have walked with him for three years. But let's just transfer that reality. The fact is that use you and I have too. Paul says he had been with Jesus. But he never walked in that ministry circles with him for three years. Friends, we can do the same thing. That we are to go and proclaim that we have been with Jesus. It's not just that, that, that we're spiritually shaped, but that we have a declarative ministry. That ministry of the gospel witness and proclamation to those who love and, want, and we want to see avoid hell. And so what is this ministry of declaration, this ministry of proclamation? One, Jesus shed his blood to save sinners like you and me. Has that come out of your mouth lately to an unbeliever? That Jesus is too patient and merciful with sinners who trust in him. Please follow up that with that truth, please. Because I think sometimes we just get into this whole indictment aspect of preaching the gospel that we don't stop and say, but he's going to be patient with you as, you figure, as the Spirit works in your life. That means that you and I can't be morally superior people over people who are getting saved. We expect sinners to get saved and we expect sinners to take some time to get changed. Jesus says, I I have not come to save the well, we see in other places, but I have come to seek the unwell, the sick, the spiritually sick. See, it's spiritually sick people that meet Jesus. And we get to go be a testimony to the world and say, we've been with him. We've been with Jesus. We see in Scripture and other places, they recognize them as someone, as those who have been with Jesus. And we have the same testimony today. And we have that testimony among those who, te- who struggle with addiction of all kinds and all forms. We have those who struggle with identity and sexual struggles, as we mentioned earlier. And this particularly is important because God gives us that new identity. And that we don't have to have a, uh, we don't have to settle for co-opted identities as Christians, as if, and what I mean by that is, you're not, you're not a poor Christian first, you're not, a, you're not a depressed Christian, you're not an alcoholic Christian, you're not a poor addicted Christian, you're not a gay Christian, you're not a trans Christian, you're not an abused Christian. Christian. You're a Christian. Amen. You are a son and daughter of the King. Full stop. 
And it's that truth that we walk with people and walk beside people who have all these competing identities in their life. And we get to say, trust in Jesus and you have a new identity. It doesn't mean that those other things don't remain struggles in our lives. Ah, Lord knows that many of us know that in this room. I know that in this room. But see, the world would say to you, okay, fine, have your Christian thing, but make sure you have all these little subtle little, little, little extra labels on it. That's not helpful. Not because they're not real, not because your struggle's not real, but because the reality is it doesn't help you rest in Christ. You are an heir of the king brothers and sisters in Christ. You are an heir to what Christ has accomplished. And all these other labels are fleeting labels. No, we are sons and daughters of the King. And when we remember this, we're able to shed the old wardrobe of our old identities that we've stapled over our lives. And we begin this process and the hard process of mortifying the flesh in our life. It's not easy. And you may spend and likely will spend the rest of your life with that process of mortification of of your sin. It's okay. But you do it within the confines of the church. You do it in light of who Christ is and what he's done for you. See, friends, the message you and I are sent to, the message that we are embodied, that embodies everything about us as we live in this world that is so hate, that's so hateful towards the things of God, that is so in conflict, that is in so, in so much hostility in the world, the, the thing that we're sent to proclaim, to live and display as God's people is that gospel that says, come all, peasant or elite. Come all, king or vassal. Come all, all are welcome. All are welcome. See, this is true freedom, a freedom far beyond the freedoms that you and I, whatever kind of freedom you and I can construct in this lifetime, whether it's Western freedom or other, some other kind of freedom, it doesn't matter. There's a greater freedom available to those out there who will want this freedom, but they're so chained. They're so chained to their earthly identities. Dare I say there might even be people in this room today who are chained to earthly identities. And you can't even begin to think about what life is unyoked from that identity. And here is the answer. And I know it's the overly spiritual answer, so you're just going to have to bear with me on this one. Jesus is enough for you. That's your hope. That's your justification. Always and only your only justification. So let's, so then let's come back and kind of pull everything together here and ask the final question. Why do we need to face this <sighs> discouraging reality about the hostility of the world often? Well, one is, and I think I've used this illustration before, the church isn't called to be the little ostrich that Foghorn Leghorn found, and he wants to stick his head in the sand because he wants to ignore the problems of the world. Everyone familiar with this? Is this like, am I the only guy in the room who knows this? If not, go look it up. It's awesome. We're not called to that. No, we are called to face the very reality of the dangers that exist in this world, the hatred the world exists, that exists towards the church and towards God, and the possible effects of that on our lives. And Jesus gives us a few things and tells us a few things right here in the first four verses of chapter 16 that I think are helpful. The reason why we must face these discouraging realities is number one, Brooklyn verse number one, we face the real danger of stumbling. That's what it says there, right? I have told you these things to keep you from 
stumbling. He, he, he says these things to you because he knows the very reality that stumbling is right around the corner for many of us in this room. Now, what is stumbling? Stumbling is agreement with truths that are not commiserate with God's goodness. It's trusting in something else besides the justification that you have in Jesus. If you're struggling with whatever it is that you're struggling with in this morning, it is because you stumble because you have found yourself in agreement with that compromise. Stumbling here, what Jesus has in mind is that kind of compromise to agree with the assessments and the fleeting hopes of this world. See, the world wants us to embrace the, the arid truth that our identity is found in our psychological peace with ourselves or fr and freedom to make of ourselves what we wish to make ourselves. That's the prevailing notion today. So that's the first thing we see here why we need to face this discouraging reality. The second thing we need to look at is very simple, and we see it right here in verse 2. We face the sobering reality of rejection. We do. But it, it says there, they will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, at, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. This is what Jesus is preparing his disciples for. But friends, it's not just his immediate disciples. This is the entirety of the church until he returns. They will throw you out of the synagogues, and they will think, it says later on, they're offering a service to God while doing it. See, Jesus' disciples faced the real reality that they would be rejected by those who were closest to them. See, to be thrown out of the synagogue was to have your entire familial, uh, social, and vocational, and social influence called into question. To be thrown out of the synagogue would be the equivalent of being thrown out of the society itself, out of everything you have known, everything that you have valued, everything that you hold dear. And again, to put this in more modern terms, this is why it's extremely hard to evangelize Muslims. This is why it's extremely hard to evangelize Buddhists and Hindus and Catholics in Poland, for instance, or Russian Orthodox in Russia, because it is so ingrained in their social structure. They are not spiritual identities, though. They're earthly identities. And you will be thrown out of society's center because you hold to something different. And I know we don't like hearing this, right? But let's also just take it another step further because he says you'll be thrown out of the synagogues. That means the very center of religious life. You'll be thrown out of that. Think about that in context of our own world today. Like even churches will reject, if you're not, we're not careful, because, uh, reject those of us... Um, who oppose things that in some ways many evangelicals or some evangelicals have become so accustomed to that are set against the goodness of God. Does that make sense? That you won't kind of go along with the show, you won't go along with the play. Just, just okay, you may not agree, but can you just sit down and be quiet about it? Just do your thing? Um, I mean, I hear it all the time. Again, I hear this on... Both ends of the spectrum, right? Uh, if you don't stand for this, you're out. If you don't stand for that, you're out. And, and um, there, there, there are generally two rules towards social media engagement among pastors, among Christians today. It is this. Number one rule is prove you're not a social justice warrior, neo-Marxist. That's like your first rule you've got to prove now, apparently. And maybe you don't feel this way, but I feel this way as a pastor, because I trust me, there are people out there watching every little thing that a pastor does. Um, or, two, prove that you're not a nationalist. You see, that, see how those things begin to take shape of what the church is supposed to be, and it co-op with the church's mission? 
No, we're not called to prove any of these things. We are called to prove that we love one another because Christ has loved us, is what we saw last week. And so that's the shape of our ministry as we go out into the world. And we don't have to compromise that. We don't have to question that. We don't have to even, we don't even have to, um, to, 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 to deal with people's questioning that of ourselves. We are justified in Christ and Christ alone. Friends, at the end of the day, it's very important that we as a family of Christ remember that reality. That what binds us together is not cultural allegiances uh, or cultural compromises or any of these other things. But what binds us together is the love of Christ that is manifested in the love of God's church for one another. That is the truly marvelous thing of the church's ministry. And when that is done well, and when we do it through things like relief efforts to, to, to Ukraine, or we do it with relief efforts in other places, or we do it even here in our own city, what we're doing is we're showing and we're displaying and we're going to the world. Who cares about whatever everything else is? I know that sounds overly simplistic to some people, and I understand that the world's a very complex place. But the last thing I want us to see here before we wrap up is this. Jesus says there's one other thing you need. The reason we need to face these realities in our life, the reason why you and I must face this tragedy, face these discouraging realities, that we can't just put our heads in the sand, is because there's not a moment in your life, not a moment in my life, where I don't need renewed hope, assurance, and confidence in God's Word at every turn. That's what he says there in verse 3. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Verse 4, but I have told you these things so that when, when their time comes, to you will remember. I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. I love that part right there, right? But I have told you these things so that when they come, when their time comes, you will remember all that I told you. When this happens, and it will, we need to know where we go to get hope. And we need to remember that Jesus has provided that. And we need to know that through the Spirit, God has provided us this book, the Bible, so that we might stand. And I'm not saying any of these things. Again, I didn't control when this text lands for us to preach. I'm not saying any of these things to provide scare tactics for any of us here this morning. And neither was Jesus. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, it's going to look good, it's going to look good, it's going to look good. Actually, it's going to be really bad. See, he's not doing it. He's not doing a little sleight of hand here. Oh, see how good everything looks? And so come on in. Everything looks great. I mean, it's all comfortable in here. And then he goes, actually, no, it's terrible. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not doing scare tactics. He's just really calling us, and we need to call ourselves to be really honest about the reality of the world we live in that's so hostile to the things of God. And the reason why there's conflicts in the world, the reason why there are rumors of war, is because the world is set in opposition to God. Very simple. We must return again and again to the word given to us by our God and remember that all that God has revealed to us, to remember all that God has revealed about us, to remember all that God has revealed about himself and his covenant love for his people to save them and to preserve them in the midst of this hostile world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray as we